Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film lovers. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. And today, we're starting a brand new segment all about movies set in Los Angeles called The LA Sessions. And Brian Taborny is back on the show for its inaugural episode to talk about Quentin Tarantino's love letter to 1960s Hollywood and the golden age of cinema. We're talking about 2019's once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right. Welcome, film lovers, to this brand new segment, The LA Sessions. I'm here in Los Angeles recording this episode over Discord with our long-awaited, uh, lovely guest, Brian Taborny. is back on the show. How you doing, Brian? Uh, I'm doing pretty, pretty swell. How about you, Josh? Oh, I'm I'm just living the dream. I'm better now that you're here. Oh, um, sir, it's, <laughs> didn't have to say. It's been that. a oh, buddy. Oh, it's it's been a while since um since you've been on the show. We talked about Interstellar. I remember um, that we did mm-hmm. last time. I, I was curious. You know, that was just about two years ago. Probably the last time we did that. A little a little less. And you're right. I just want, I was curious, how has your, um, how have movie going experiences changed for you since then? Because we talked a a lot about, uh, a lot in that episode, and has your, you know, the mindset that you have going into movies, is it, has it changed over the past two years? Like, what is different when you watch a movie, do you feel? Are we talking like, like since that episode? Yeah, like since that time, like the last two years. Um... Overall, it's like my view on movies has kind of changed a little bit. I've wanted to become more I've wanted to become more analytical about movies over the past couple years because a lot of the times I realize that like whenever I watch a movie, I'm just I just say to myself a lot of the times when I watch a movie, I'll just think to myself like if it entertained me, then it's fine. But, like, I've wanted to get more into, like, analyzing movies since then and, like, thinking about, you know, how how does this moment, how does this moment in the movie help drive the film's story towards the end and stuff, you know, just thinking more in depth with movies in general is what I've been trying to do. And I think Mm -hmm. I've, I think I've, you know... I think I've uh, tried to do that more in the past couple of years, so I think it's been going pretty swell. Well, that's good to hear. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I I feel like that's kind of the what we've been trying to do for the past, you know, since we've, we've known each other the past like three years or so, and right, you know, just as you know, students and the whack that there's so much. Um, so much media out there now and there's so many movies to take in it's always good to constantly you know take in um you know take in new opinions and kind of change your mindset when it comes to when it comes to film and because like you know the fact that we're able to have so many different interpretations and opinions on a movie you know is really fortunate and i'm happy that we're able to do that but with analysis um 
you know, taking in as many perspectives as you can, uh, I feel like makes the experience better and like how we can change our. Yeah, that's why that's always why whenever I watch a movie, I always go to you about it first, because I feel like out of out of everyone that I know, you're the most analytical about movies. And I feel like I can talk to you about movies like literally forever, like any movie in particular. I've. That's why I always go to you whenever I'm in the middle of watching a movie or I find something out about a movie um, and I always go to you about it other than quoting Simpsons all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good, my friend, because frankly, I love movies. Oh, that's it, everybody. Thank you. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, Let's roll the credits. (laughs) Now. The, the reason I ask that, and it, it seems like a question out of left field, and it kind of is, um, but we're in this age now where everyone seems to have an opinion, you know, right off the bat and kind of sticks with it. And sometimes it takes a while for your opinion to change or your view on something to kind of take time to, you know, mold it over and um, get, a, get a fresh perspective and really, um, you know, kind of critique the your thoughts on something, and I feel like that the um, a perfect example of that with myself, uh, maybe with you, and you know, with a lot of people who perceived uh, this movie uh, with the film that we're going to talk about today. We're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, to start off this new series, the LA Sessions. Um, and I, I want to know, I want to know why why you picked this one. Uh, well. First of all, because you you told me to pick a movie that takes place in Hollywood, and what better movie than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? But I also I also picked this movie because because I do enjoy Tarantino's films quite a bit, and I don't know. I just it's because I think it's because it's a very recent film, and I saw it. I got to see it in theaters because. To see a movie in theaters versus like at home on your TV is they're like two different experiences entirely. Mm-hmm. So I just felt that because I saw it in theaters and it does take place entirely in Hollywood, then I thought it was just perfect for a first episode. It's a good choice um, for sure. Uh, I think, you know, kind of to start off uh, before we dive into everything, uh, let's let's talk about Tarantino. Uh, I mean, right. there's there's not a whole lot that we can add to the Tarantino conversation that hasn't <laughs> already been said. Uh, he's, you know, clearly one of the, the modern auteurs and just has such a signature style and has, you know, taken on this other persona of, um, like, you know, everyone in film school, you know, has a fucking Pulp Fiction poster on their wall. And like, you know, literally he's every, taken on every fucking every yeah. goddamn film student just like creams their pants over Tarantino <laughs> every single time. I swear to God, uh, it's cool because Pulp Fiction is out of order and it means, that, you know, it's like it, it's an allegory for, you know, like uh, bread making. And uh, but <laughs> Now, that being said, you know, it's kind of hard, you know, because he's always been one of my favorite directors. And I can't deny the fact of the impact that he's had on me. Right. Uh, This is I'm fairly certain this is the first Tarantino film that we're doing on the show. This is also the most recent. Um, Is it really? You haven't done any other Tarantino films before this? I don't think so. If it was going to be anything, it would be 
it would have been Inglorious or um, or Reservoir Dogs, but we've done neither of those films yet. Gotcha. But, uh, okay. but stay tuned. Who knows? It might be coming soon. Yes. Um, but it, it's, you know, against all the the stigmatism that comes with liking Tarantino, he's definitely someone who makes a movie and it becomes an event that that movie's coming out. You know, the... <laughs> There's obviously already a bunch of controversy surrounding his past three films and the fact that, you know, he, you know, worked with Harvey Weinstein for so many years right, and yeah. the, um, you know, there's always going to be some form of, um, you know, comment or backlash or intrigue when going into his films. And there's not a whole lot of other filmmakers um, like him out there right now. Would you agree? How Has your perception of him changed or what is your feeling towards tarantino as of right now as of right now he's definitely not definitely not one of my like top five favorite directors in hollywood or anything but he's definitely i can appreciate the style and just like his view that he's brought to hollywood over the years because he's like you said he's definitely he has a signature style and everybody can um, everybody can recognize a Tarantino film whenever they see it. Uh, you said, what did you say about like his, his past couple films? It's always an event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely recognized that with once upon a time in Hollywood <clears throat> and hateful eight. He's always like, he's always been a fan of like movies that were made in like the sixties and seventies that were like, like these big grand events. And it was always like, like back in those times, it was always like you dress up and you go out to the movies and there was, it was like going to a a Broadway play, but it was going to the movies and he has an appreciation for that, which I also appreciate. So I, I do like that. He's trying to bring that back to Hollywood in a certain way, especially with making his movies three hours long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He takes a, he takes a sweet ass time with a, with his movies. He, he really he always takes. He always takes you know. He always takes a certain you know break in between films, and then uh, you know the movies are always you know so long. You know Django was close to three hours. Yeah. Hatefully, it was too. Um, but it, it's clear that like the his style is very much inspired by um, you know just pretty much everything. The past like three or four films or so are heavily influenced by westerns of the 60s and uh the 50s and the 60s right um he's had you know movies that are based off of obviously the kill bill movies are based off of kung fu films and fighting and all of that um i i i want to pose this question because um I, I think it's an important one to raise when talking about tarantino um it's clear that he is one who always you know kind of borrows or is inspired by every director and every movie that he's has seen do you feel like the fact that he does that, that, you know, borrows constantly from other stories or other directors, does that make him unoriginal? Is that more of a demerit on his part or does he still do it in his own succinct way that makes it personal to him? I do. I do definitely think that he brings, even though he does like to borrow a lot of elements from different movies and different stories that he's seen, he also puts his own spin on the stories and tries to make them he tries to make them his own so i don't i wouldn't consider it stealing because it's not it's not like 
I don't ever watch his films and say like, oh, I've seen this before in like a different in like another movie. So why should I watch this one? I never think that whenever I'm watching his films because he he tries to put his own creative spin on those story elements. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I absolutely agree. And um, I mean, it's hard at this point to not be influenced or take you know something from other directors or pay homage or whatever but he does it in such a way that's interesting that he kind of he melds so many different directors and styles and like story plots together that are influenced from other movies that that hodgepodge has kind of never been done before and that makes it kind of original and personal to him i've always thought that where his like really you know his voice comes in as like his dialogue because his dialogue is just so meticulous and it, you know, it stands out among other writers. I felt like that was, I always, I've always felt that he is much more strong as a writer than he is a director. Not that he's not a great director, but right, I cause feel I've, like I've always like, cause I've all, we've always heard that he's the king of dialogue. Like he knows how to write mm-hmm. dialogue really well. So yeah, I would agree with you that he's, a much stronger writer than he is a director. And his stories are just so sprawling and there's always like so many things to find. And the, the stories are always, you know, like in engaging. Uh, and I, where does, where does once upon a time in Hollywood rank for you among his other films? I know, I knew that you were going to ask me this at some point. Um, I would say, my f- my personal favorite Tarantino film amongst all of them would have to be Hateful Eight. Um, so Once Upon a Time would have to... I would say it does rank in the top five, but I wouldn't consider it his greatest film. No, that's... Yeah, that's fair. I mean, when I when I saw it, I was like, I, I didn't think that um, it was his best. But I still loved it. Like, I, I there was something about it. Yeah, no, it it's that, not that like, I didn't like it or anything like that. Mm-hmm, no, no, for sure. Um... I mean, Inglorious will always be my favorite of his for sure. I mean, really? and there's okay. a, there's just something about that movie that is just so special and unlike anything else that was coming out at that time, um, and says that a lot of it has remained fairly relevant. Um, but Once Upon a Time is like it's clearly you know it's like this um, it's a, it's a whole other different animal you know than a lot of his other movies it's a it's a wandering movie it's just it takes place in just these these three days of these actors lives there's not a real set you know full-on first act setup story structure of all three acts yeah yeah kind of it's kind of i don't want to say all over the place but it's you know it's definitely different in that sense um and uh and it, you know, like I said, it becomes it becomes an event. You know, a Tarantino movie's coming out, and you know it's going to premiere at Cannes, and it gets all this press and all the all these buzz. And but like he's always been someone. Um, I think this is also important to bring. He's always someone who's tied to some form of controversy, whether it's like you know excessive use of violence in his films. Or, that is you know, very true. Yeah poor or certain you know like language like certain things with language like he you know uses the n-word in a lot of his a lot of his films uh and there's an important piece of you know controversy in in this film that i feel like we should definitely talk about and we can obviously save it for later if we want to um and that's his um his female characters that of you know sharon tate and the the manson family how they're depicted Mm -hmm. um do you think that when a, co- a controversy surrounding a film comes out, just speaking broadly here, 
does that for you make you more intrigued by it and make you want to go search it out? Or do you listen fully to the, um, to the controversy and kind of maybe stay away? I mean, it's like a subjective and, uh, right. you know, it's, it's, it depends on the film, but I'm just curious where, where you, where it stands for you. For me personally, whenever I see something on the news or on online or anywhere that says, um, it says anything along the lines of like any controversial topic that's being spoken about in a movie. Typically I do try to stray away from that just because I know in my head that when I'm watching whatever movie it is, I'm going to be thinking about that controversy in my head and I don't want that to ruin my experience of the film. Mm. At least to me personally, like one one example that it kind of it kind of contradicts what I said, but like the Sonic movie and how um, before they changed the look of Sonic, like it was getting all this controversial, just like hate towards how he looked. And I said to myself, I'm still going to go see the movie anyway, uh, mm-hmm. just because I wanted to. But then they ended up changing him and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but typically I do try to stray away from controversial movies just because I know I'm going to be thinking about that controversial topic in my head the entire time I'm watching the movie. Instead That's of fair. instead I mean, of actually watching the movie and getting into the story. I mean, it's it's a hard you know, it's a it's a hard call to make, you know, and and sometimes it's like I always try and listen to things like that. Like I always try right. and like be as up to date on you know, what for, you know, to kind of make it general, like whatever movie news or like, um, you know, like recent events that happen in film, especially around, you know, festival time, because there's always going to be some article that comes out or whatever. And, you know, t- like I said, Tarantino's film this year was no, sh- or last year was no, sh- not shy of any controversy. Um, for me, it's like, I, I want to know about it. Like, right. I, I, I want to know, like, what people are thinking about it. Not that I need to directly, um, like, know about the movie going into it. But I want to, like, at least be somewhat aware of what is going on in some way. Right. And most of the time, I want to be able to go to the movie still, regardless of controversy, and make the judgment myself and kind of analyze it. Yeah, no, um, I get that. But but there are times where the controversy has kind of over, you know, like gone over my want to see it with certain movies. I mean, I, I guess it just is hard and you kind of have to pick your battles and things like that, where I, I feel like it's important to kind of listen to it or at least like, you know, hear it out. But we should also make our own judgments sometimes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's very true, because you shouldn't let media or co- like news coverage of any controversial topic skew your your own opinion into the like you shouldn't let it skew your own opinion to one side or the other you should be able to make that judgment yourself especially with film unless it's like universe like if it completely unanimous like this yeah. is offensive this is awful like if, if if everyone is saying that that i'm just gonna I'm, I'm usually one to be like okay i i i'm probably gonna agree <laughs> you know <laughs> But if it's uh, like if it's 50-50, like it is offensive, mm-hmm. it's not offensive, then I will try to make that decision myself, more or less. Mm-hmm. 
And with this film, you know, I there I heard about all the controversy and all the you know certain agendas that were being pushed to uh, go against this movie and right. And it's kind of hard in this age to not be perceptive to that. You know, like every like I said, everyone's got a voice, everyone's got an opinion, and yeah, it is um, very it is very very difficult to stray away from like controversy in general. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the controversy for this film is very different because, you know, a lot of controversy for the movie was coming out. And I feel like some people may have just not fully seen the movie or understood necessarily what the movie was saying. And there's a lot that is being said in this movie. (laughs) Um, And we'll get to what that controversy was a little bit later. Um, But I don't remember. Let's I don't remember there being a whole lot of coverage about like like controversy with once upon a time in hollywood either like i don't remember i don't remember a lot of people talking about any controversial topics with this film in particular at least for me Uh, i didn't see it okay well maybe it was just when like when it was first coming out around Cannes, there were some reviews that were kind of citing certain certain issues with the film and it's not like It's not like Joker or something, which had like, you know, a okay, lot of yeah, that's... controversy coverage. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a better comparison. <laughs> um, so why don't we just dive right in uh, and get into the meat of What's Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, and I, I, it's really it's hard to you know know where to start with this movie because it kind of just throws you right in. You kind of know right off the bat that this is a wandering movie and you're just going to kind of be with these characters for the next three hours or so. You just kind of have to take it in. And right off the bat, you are like, you know, you're in the hands of, you know, you're in the hands of Tarantino. He's like just a master with detail, but he's like full of nostalgia and loves everything that he's doing. He really Um, does. and, And you get first thing you get is this, you know, expose on Rick Dalton with Cliff about him being the stuntman and bounty law and all of that. Um, do you think that going into this movie, if you don't know the specific references of 60s Westerns or like the, you know, how television was at the beginning of the 70s or even just the Manson family in general, you feel like you can still have a good time at this movie? I would say yes, you could definitely because even if you haven't seen any Westerns from the 60s, the 70s and, you know, those grand um, movies that came out back then, because I know I haven't seen a whole lot of Westerns like Clint Eastwood movies or anything like that. I still haven't seen Good, Good, Bad and the Ugly, Um, Mm -hmm. but I feel like those movies have been referenced enough amongst other movies and other other uh, art mediums that you kind of do get the gist of how westerns and movies back in that era were supposed to operate so i feel like even if you haven't seen a western movie from that time you should it it shouldn't like it shouldn't deter you from watching the movie yeah like no push you away from Exactly. Um, yeah, no, uh, you said it. It was it shouldn't deter you from enjoying the movie and getting some of the more subtle references that are made in the movie. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I feel like the only thing one person probably should know going into this is at least a little knowledge of the Manson family. 
and how, you know, they you know, were operating out of Southern California and, you know, Sharon Tate was brutally murdered that on one night when she was, um, uh, right in the early, when she was pregnant and her unborn baby died. Um, oh, okay. and I, I feel like that's important information to know the rest of it, um, is it's completely different because it realistically, if you're just looking at it as a movie, the rest of the Western stuff, the television, Hollywood stuff, it's just world building. The only difference between this and something like, you know, something more fictional or even more like a fictional world is that, you know, this world is more accessible to a general audience than, you know, something like, I don't know, like Avatar or something, you know, that's that was completely yeah, created or that's very something true. like that. Because Hollywood does actually exist. Unlike mm-hmm. unlike a fantasy movie or a sci-fi movie or anything like that, Hollywood, it it does exist and you can actually go there. So it does make it a little more, like you said, it makes it more accessible to the audience. Since you brought up Hollywood, and this is a show about movies and being in L.A., uh, obviously you're back home and... Uh, in New York, but I'm I'm curious to bring it into the conversation about Hollywood in this film. How does a location itself affect a movie for you, or how can it affect a movie? Well, like for me, sometimes a location is like kind of brings it, makes it more whole. And something like, um, you know, like like Birdman takes place pretty much entirely within. A theater, so it kind of gives it this more claustrophobic feel, right? Or something like, um, what's a movie that? Oh, we've um, Indiana Jones, where mm-hmm. like it's like traveling all over. Okay, yeah. So like, yeah, like you said, a movie such as I don't know. I want to say Saw because Saw takes place <laughs> in like it takes place in literally in like one location pretty much for the entirety of the movie. So like you said, it makes it feel more claustrophobic and, you know, um, it gets you really tense. And then Indiana Jones takes place literally different locations all over the world. So it gives an adventurous open world kind of feeling to it. So mm-hmm. it, do, it does. So location definitely does change how your audience will perceive the movie. And I think it also comes with like the overall look of the movie that too, um, yeah. Like, you know, Indiana Jones is this, like, you can tell that movie is set in the 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it it looks, you know, kind of, it looks older, it looks dusty, it looks this, like, kind of brownish color, the whole movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like you said, it's very adventurous. Mm-hmm. Something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very different because it it's a movie about, you know, glamour and fame and your career and this whole movie, I mean, all of Tarantino's movies have a very, you know, the, the, the colors pop. Mm-hmm. And here they, obviously, they recreated um, all of Sunset Boulevard for them to drive down. Right. Um, to make it look like it was 1969, um, which I have driven down uh, before. Did you really? Uh, while being here. Yeah, it's beautiful. They still have the, the Cinerama sign that is, um, that's still there. I love, I love that sign. Just like the look mm-hmm. of it, I love that sign so much. Um, but it like it it shows it makes it more clear that it's in the '60s. But like also, it kind of it, it's so inviting. It is, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. it shows it shows you that like this area is like it's an infectious place. 
you know, people want to be like people go in droves out there to try and make it and like kind of be successful. Right. And you could feel that, I, I, I think, in the in just looking at the, you know, the scenery. Yeah, because I think I think I read somewhere that a lot of the times in the movie, like the big establishing shots of Hollywood, um, they would actually use stock footage from that time period of Hollywood just so that, you know, budgetary reasons they didn't want to, you know shut down streets and decorate everything. But um, when you do look at Hollywood from that time period, it does it does invite you into that world because it's nice and sunny, it's bright, there are a lot of people around and they're all they all seem happy and um you know they're walking everywhere and there's all these cars and it's like this busy bustling place that invites you into this world. Couldn't have said it better myself, Brian. <laughs> um, and like also just the feel of 1969. It's cool to kind of have a movie go back like and try and be as authentic as possible and That's having location true. and even and even like the costumes. Like I remember when they first they released the first photo of Leo and Brad Pitt together as their characters. Right. And we still didn't know a lot about the movie. We just knew that they were in it at Margot Robbie with Sharon Tate. And when they released that photo and Leo's in that brown leather jacket Mm -hmm. and uh, Pitt is just like decked out in denim, I was like, this is going to feel like so authentic. Like I I just, (laughs) I just know it. Like you could just kind of feel it. And this movie like it, it definitely does. Like yeah, you just you are automatically transported into this world. Um, you can and literally within the first five minutes, you literally are shown what like what time period this is and what world we are gonna be in because it opens up with um, it opens up with this four by three black and white box that you associate with television from that time period so it literally it does transport you to that that time in hollywood let's talk about the characters um tarantino is known for you know having very eccentric characters um they're very you know well thought out in depth they always have very poetic things to say Mm -hmm. um i think he goes all out here really i mean he he is like just firing on all cylinders with characters here. Um, and like, I mean, just setting it in a place like, you know, Hollywood in the sixties in the, you know, the studio setting with the tele with the TV sets and kind of makes itself, you know, uh, open to more colorful personalities, you know, just like very like no one in this movie. I feel like you wouldn't meet in, in real life. Like a lot or a lot of times in Tarantino movies, they're just such characters. You're just like, I can't think of a single person who I've met in my life that is anywhere similar to who you are. But you just like they're so odd and just so inviting that you're like, okay, I'm willing to spend the next three hours with you. Like, I mean, in Inglorious Bastards, he literally takes someone he takes the most, you know, horrifying like fictional nazi and makes him like (laughs) and makes him someone that you want to listen to you just like keep talking like i i want to hear what you have to say but you're horrible and how like 
what is it about a Tarantino character? Like, I, it's really hard to describe them, you know? Like, would, would you agree? Like, they're, like, these clearly, like, there's a lot of detail in them. They're, like, inviting. Like, what would you think, what would you say about his characters? I would say, first of all, I want to know who played, who played the Nazi guy in Inglorious Bastards? Uh, it was, uh, it was Christoph Waltz, who was also the dentist, the, uh, Dr. King Schultz in, uh, Django Unchained. Okay. The bearded guy with Jamie Foxx. Yeah, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know what it is about, about him making awful people seem like, seem like they're inviting and in good people for some reason, or like, how he makes them seem interesting. I would say another example of this would be in Django Unchained with Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Cause he's, you know, he's this white plantation Southern owner who's really racist, but you want to listen to every single word he's saying for some reason. And I think it's how, I think it's how the actor portrays, whatever character this is for some reason there's something about leonardo dicaprio in that movie he's just so entertaining to watch that you want to watch him more i think that that's a that's a certain component of it is just how the how the actor how much fun the actor is having with this role in general because if they're having fun then you're going to be having fun pretty much Django is actually that's my favorite um, Leo performance. Really? Okay. Yeah. And do you want to know what my second favorite is? Titanic. Oh, it's this movie, Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Leo, Leo is incredible. He is. Uh, no, he really is. I mean, I've always been a big Leo fan ever since, and I, I, I'm sorry I called you a jackass. But no, like, it's ever since I, I've, ever since I first saw Titanic as a kid, I I loved Leo like instantly, and it's just following his career and just you know seeing what like you know what he's doing next and how he's grown. Um, he's just he, like just a decade defining actor, and he, he is. always brings it. Like he's literally he's 45, I think he's gotten to the point where he's working with the best directors in the business and, um, you know, has won an Oscar and can now take like big breaks in between his films and be okay and come back and do whatever project that he wants. Um, He but in this movie, he's like, I don't know, he's. First of all, he's he's an awful person. He's such an <laughs> asshole in this movie. <laughs> he's such a dick. But like the fact that but he fits perfectly in with the movie's themes, you know, it's this you know, we meet him at first and he's trying to you know, he's just doing all these television shows and he's the heavy, he's the bad guy. Right. Um and you can he has that great exchange at the beginning with Al Pacino and Al yeah. Pacino's like your career is going downhill. Like you either, you could either do this, you could stay as the heavy in television shows, or you can go to Rome and make Westerns, you know, it's up to you. But like, and there's just something about Leo. I think that the fact that they started off that way, like you see, he's a skilled actor. He loves to act. He loves doing all this shit. And 
the fact that they instantly set up, oh, this guy's career is almost over. And that is kind of a component that makes you feel for him, like, right off the bat. Because, like, he's built this entire world around himself, and the fact that it could literally almost crumble in an instant. And you see it, like, like immediately after when they go out into the parking lot. And, and he just, just like, breaks out into, like, tears. Yeah, I like the like, realization, it's yeah. <laughs> it's official, old buddy. My has been. <laughs> Brad Pitt has my favorite line in that scene. He's crying, and Brad Pitt goes, come on, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love that. <laughs> what did you think of uh, what did you think of Leo and Brad like right off the bat? Like because like they clearly established they have such a close friendship and they're like, you know, tied at the hip, and they're the center point of this movie. They they're the whole movie rides on their chemistry. And I think Tarantino got it um, right, just pairing the two of them together. Like, what did you think of me? Like, first time you see them on screen, your first viewing, what did you think of them together? I thought, um, like you said, it felt like the between the two of them, it was like this brotherly love, almost. Even though, like, they're the furthest thing from brothers, but they they both clearly love each other, and, um. Just the way they that they interact with each other in that first like five minutes of the movie, especially is very small. But the way that Brad Pitt, um, <laughs> when um the interviewer asks him, uh, uh, would you describe your career that way? And then Brad Pitt says, "What carrying his load?" Sounds about right. Just like the way he looks at him, you get like this this link that's between them. Just like just this this bond and i like that you brought that up because i think in general i think tarantino can write brotherly love really well especially in a movie like pulp fiction with um um samuel l jackson and john travolta cuz like just them interacting together they felt like you know it felt like they've been friends for a long time and they know each other yeah, and it it all depends, like you know, a lot on the um, on the chemistry between the two actors. So like, right. you hit gold with Sam Jackson and John Travolta; they're just like perfect. And like, it, I feel like it's it might be a little tough to find those you know people who have chemistry like that. But Tarantino writes his characters for actors, like for particular actors and people to play the roles and hear the dialogue said the way that he wants them to say it doesn't he um, i think hasn't he said before that like whenever he's writing a character he always has like a specific actor in mind to play that character yeah um and i think i think leo and brad were his two choices for for this movie and uh and there were there's a lot of speculation on who else could have had the role but like you honestly you I, this movie doesn't work without them uh they're both at the top of their a game you know they are just both bringing it in in two completely different ways i mean because what's kind of cool about this movie is that you get the two sides of it right so you got you got the big star over here and he's you know just really trying to make his way in acting and 
he's clearly like Rick, you know, Rick Dalton is clearly under a tremendous amount of stress and is you know, very scared of where his career is going to go. But he's also mm-hmm. an alcoholic. He's, you know, a chain smoker. He's, you know, he's kind of, you know, just deteriorating. Whereas Brad Pitt over here is like, uh, you know, he's just the stunt man and he is kind of a little bit more just like go with the flow. You know, you tell me to do something, I'll do it, you know, yeah. kind of kind of guy it's Um, amazing it's amazing because i i literally wrote something down just like that in my notes as i was watching the movie because you can clearly see in you know in the first 10 minutes that these two actors have very different lives from each other but they still they're still you know still the best of friends and even even in like something as simple as their cars because when Cliff drops Rick off at his house, you see him walk towards his car to go back home. And even just like the difference between their cars, like Rick Dalton's car is this grand, um, I think it was like a Chrysler car, but it was like this really big, nice looking car. And then Cliff drives like this sporty little piece of shit that like you would expect a stunt you would expect a stunt driver to drive because it it just looks like a stunt car pretty much and he's been I mean he's been out of the business for so long and i mean he's just kind of but like it's it's clear that like they're very opposite but they work well like they just mesh well yeah. together it's like an opposite attract kind of thing yeah yeah and i mean the fact that they you know they just play them so well and like um you know DiCaprio's always like just one little second away from snapping. Like <laughs> yeah. he's like when he's like in the pool and he's recording his lines and he's like drinking a whiskey sour and he's like trying to get it right and he's like you know <laughs> like he's just you can clearly see that he wants to get them right and yeah. obviously that comes back a little bit later. Yeah. Um but I love that that, you know, they set up that it's this idea that his career is going downhill like this type of old Hollywood is dying and there's a whole new resurgence of Hollywood coming up um and you know one of the last people to embody that is um is Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie right um and and I I have to say so we were talking about controversy earlier um uh, some controversy or some comments that came out about this movie when it first was released, even at Cannes, um, people were saying that you have someone like Margot Robbie, who's one of the biggest stars in the world right now. She can do whatever movie she wants. She's playing Sharon Tate. Um, and she has very minimal dialogue throughout the whole movie. A lot of it is very visual. Um, and even the scenes that she's in, she doesn't speak a lot. And people were saying that that... Um, you know, is is sexist or was misogynistic or has some issues with it. Um, and at first I was like, I, I understand the, I understand that perspective of it, like that criticism, like, okay, she's this big star and she's really not saying anything. Mm-hmm. But here's the power of Margot Robbie as an actress. Here's what she was able to do. She was able to take a role that has minimal dialogue and make you attach yourself to them instantly through this, like, just her overall being and personality of just this bright light of just someone who's just, like, holistically good in this, like, you know, kind of awful, gross world. Um, and I, she, 
every single time I see her on screen, each time I watch this movie, she just lights up. She is amazing. I honest, I I love her performance in this movie. Yeah, no, I would I would definitely agree with that because every every time she's on screen, she's always it seems like she's always happy. She's always happy and bubbly and dancing, and she's like she just has this energy that's addictive. And I think one of one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the the part where she's in the theater watching herself on screen and she she sees like she's getting all these laughs from everybody, um, like all these wanted all this wanted laughter is around her and she smiles and she just like feels just like this accomplishment because she's like, I'm getting the reaction I want. I I'm entertaining people and she's clearly like very proud of herself. And even even in just that one scene, there's no dialogue, just just in her facial expressions alone. You see you see exactly what she's thinking. Absolutely. And yeah, she she just like and again, the fact that it is juxtaposed with, you know, Rick and uh, Rick and uh, and Cliff and how he's just, you know, not grateful at all for like, you know, the opportunities that he's getting and or is trying to um, you know, hold on to that one spark that like he kind of once had and is and is like just frustrated and just again not a not a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> to pair that with um uh to with Margot Robbie and her relationship with Roman Polanski, it it just makes the movie feel more whole. Like I like that we get that those both sides of yeah. this classical Hollywood. Um, I want to. <laughs> there's so many. I don't know. There's there's so many scenes to kind of go into and um, to break apart. I love, like we said, it lends itself for these kind of scenes because it's just a wandering movie. We're just gonna watch these characters and just. Right. Um, do, do, does that does that work for you? Like, do you don't do you need does it make it feel better for you for when you're watching a movie to have that kind of three act structure, or are you fine with the movie? It's just like let's just watch these characters, let's just let them be and see what what happens. Because I, because me personally, I think it depends. It does. It does depend on the story. If if your story does require a three act structure, then absolutely it does. It will suck your audience in more. Um, me personally, I do. I do enjoy the three act structure a little bit more just because I think it it lends to better storytelling. But with movies like this where you're just watching characters go around about doing their stuff and same thing with a uh, Pulp Fiction, um, it does lend to more challenging writing and filmmaking. But in general, it can, I think in general, it can make a better story in some points because it does, it can be challenging to do. So when it's done right, then it's, it's done right. Yeah. I think it, um, with, with this movie, I think it works because everything else is like every, every other component is really bringing it. So like the characters are so, you know, thought out and realized that it makes it, the story, like whatever they're doing, we can go along and attach ourselves to them and just watch or the world is so vibrant and so colorful. And there's so many different things going on that it's like, right. like even just the scene when like cliff goes home to like feed his dog, (laughs) 
behind the fucking drive-in. Yeah. You're just like, this scene like doesn't really do a whole lot, but it's funny in the way that it's edited. It's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's nice to look at. I and think it also, because that scene, I think, also sets up the kind of relate it's small but it sets up the relationship that he has with his dog because that plays on like in the very end of the movie yeah when like he like you know how close they are and like when he like clicks his tongue she she goes and um god what a great great dog she is (laughs) brandy i was literally i was like in my head just cheering cheering that dog on like in the theater when i first saw the movie uh-huh. I was yeah. just like, <laughs> and it's so violent. <laughs> yeah, it's so violent, um, but it's so satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, I want to examine. Uh, I, I love the um, that first day, like that day that he goes, that um, Rick Dalton goes on set. We see the whole time he's like filming the. Um, that pilot or that that yeah that that tv pilot of right. uh what the, what the fuck is it called uh i can't remember what it's called but like there's so many of these actors that pop up and you get this kind of whole world view and you get to see them make the make the episode and it's so fucking funny like it's so elaborate and it's cool because he's making television cinematic which we've already done in the past you know 10 years we've just become used to television becoming more <laughs> cinematic right Um, yeah but but like there are so many great moments like it's you know when he's talking to julia butters who's the little girl when he's like reading his book and you know she's just like i believe it's the job of the actor (laughs) to put in this in the performance and you're just and he's just like what the (laughs) fuck (laughs) it's because she's like she's like an eight-year-old girl and she's taking it Mm -hmm much more seriously than he is well she because she knows she's right or he knows that she's right yeah what he what she is saying is so true and he's like fuck i haven't been doing that (laughs) at all like (laughs) he realizes that he's Uh, being taught by an eight-year-old pretty much mm -hmm. yeah um she's so great she's so so (laughs) funny um I love the whole scene. I love, you know, the, the tracking when they come into the bar and he's this, you know, clearly this like outlandish TV villain. And, (laughs) and he's like, let me tell you something. (laughs) Line. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so, it's, it's amazing how even showing them like quote unquote, they're making, making a movie or making a television show, they bring you into the, the show. And then as soon as, as soon as Rick says line, it completely pulls you out of it in like a jarring, but funny way. Cause it pulls you out of it. Cause you're sucked into the, like this TV show that's in a movie. And then he says line and it completely breaks the immersion and just like, in such a funny way. I, I I laughed so hard at that part when I first saw it. Yeah. He's like, can we just cut? Can we just cut, please? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm like jumping up and down. And, shit. <laughs> and my favorite, I mean, the best, 
the like one of the best parts of that movie. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll take Leo. Give me a southern accent, like every movie that you make. Literally, like, it's yeah. so funny, especially <laughs> in this. One. J- Django, it's different. In Django, he's evil, and it's the you know, it's like the Louisiana draw. Here, he's got like a Florida panhandle <laughs> kind of thing going on. It's like um, did you it's, see? It's you like, saw Knives Out, right? Uh huh. It's like Daniel Craig with like the the fucking <laughs> foghorn like horn. Like it's yeah, it's got a little bit more twang to it than that, yeah. but it, they're both so funny. Um, but then, you know, he gets through the scene and then he, you know, cuts back and he's in his trailer and it's just see him throw his hat and just breaks and bears yourself like that for all those goddamn people. And then he, then he points at himself in the mirror and he's just like, You're gonna stop drinking. <laughs> if you, oh, and if he's you, like, if you fuck this up, I will fuck you up. <laughs> Because he's like, you know, all that's improvised, you know, and he's yeah. <laughs> he's like, like a fucking monkey, you know. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. <laughs> it's the best. And yeah, and he's looking in the mirror, but he's looking at the camera, and he's like, I will shoot your goddamn yeah. head off. <laughs> I will shoot your goddamn head off. He's talking he's, to himself yeah, it, in the mirror. And meanwhile, while that's going on, you have, um, you know, Sharon going to see her own movie. I actually just recently walked past that movie theater. Really? Um, that she that they filmed that at. Yeah, they filmed it inside of the New Beverly Cinema, which is Tarantino's own um, uh, own theater that he owns here and operates in uh, in L.A. And oh, OK. I, I love that scene. Uh, like you said, I mean, we already talked about it, but yeah, like you said, and she's just sitting there, she's just watching, mm-hmm. and you know, like she tried to prove herself that you know she was in the movie, and then the guy was like, "Oh, can we get a can we get a picture?" And she was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> totally." Like was so like again, just nice about fucking everything, and just someone that you, I mean, they they set it up because I mean, we as the audience know that, or supposedly know, you know, going in that she's gonna that she dies at the end of this story. Right. So, like, you know, he's trying to keep up, um, you know, keep up that that light and spirit. But it's also manipulative to the audience because we think that she's going to die. But, you know, we obviously at the end, she she doesn't. Which yeah. Is yeah. So interesting. Um, and I, I, I really want to get your opinion on this. This is the other kind of bit of controversy with this movie is um, the scene when Brad Pitt goes to fix uh, Leo's TV antenna mm-hmm. or whatever. We get that great flashback of him on the set with Bruce Lee. And, um, you know, we have that idea about how he may or may not have killed his wife, which he definitely did. Like, I, I am you, without a you, shadow. You think that? You yeah. agree with it? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Was that, was that scene with Bruce Lee, was that a flashback or was that a a vision or like what he was thinking in his head would happen if he like went to the set. So here's, so here's the thing. And this is kind of one of my criticisms of this movie, because when I heard this, it made sense, but it's not specifically like it's, I I feel like it could have been told a little bit better in that it was not, not that it was more deliberate necessarily, but it could have been a little bit more clear. So when I first saw it, I was like, okay, this is a memory that he's having, this is just, you know, this, he's just thinking back on this. Um, but I, I, I think what it's supposed to be is that it was something that happened, that he was on set, he was with Bruce Lee, 
challenged him to a fight, and then maybe what actually happened was Bruce Lee kicked his ass. And yeah. he he that's just how he wants to remember it. Like he thinks he's this okay. badass guy that like um and you know that kind of sets him up for being this unreliable, you know, guy and um but the but like again, the way that it's told, it's not as deliberate. I think there's a few um I know I noticed you know, that cuz it literally it goes when he's on the roof, it go it just cuts from him on the roof to him sitting in the golf cart. Mm-hmm. And then you don't know like cuz the entire time that that scene was happening, I thought he like I thought he stopped repairing the antenna and like went down to the set to like get a role get a job get a job yeah to get a job on the set and then he meets up with bruce lee and almost kicks his ass and whatnot and then i didn't realize that it was a fantasy or a memory until it cuts back to him on the roof and then it kind of just it took me a little bit out of that moment just because Mm -hmm. just because like you said it wasn't wasn't as deliberate it wasn't as clear on what exactly that whole scene was but i do yeah, i do I, think I, that like you said it it was his interpretation of a memory because i don't i don't think bruce lee would let let his ass get kicked by a stuntman uh-uh like Bru- no bruce lee like no that wouldn't happen so he was remembering it how he wanted to and that he kicked bruce lee's ass I think and in the controversy surrounding it is that like, you know, Tarantino was, you know, showing Bruce Lee as this kind of, you know, cocky, arrogant son of a bitch when he was actually, you know, this sweet kind of guy. And it's like, or, you know, someone, people were mad that it's like, fuck, this guy wouldn't kick Bruce Lee's ass. What are you talking about? Like, what? And I mean, if you watch it again, it's like, it, it it's very clearly a fucking crazy scene. He just throws him into yeah. a car or something like that. Um, but like, yeah, it's not as clear, but like <laughs> Bruce Lee probably would have been at least a little confident in, <laughs> in, in real life, like a pretty, I mean, he was the greatest, you know, one of the greatest fighters in the world. And so he, I feel like he would have been at least a little confident, but that's not that that's not the point. The point is, I feel like if that's the case where it's, interpretation or like he's trying to remember it the way that he wants to remember it it kind of dispels all of the controversy that um, it does because he's he's trying to remember bruce lee as a cocky asshole just to like make Mm -hmm. himself feel better that he was kicking the shit out of bruce lee for being a cocky asshole even though he wasn't like that in real life yeah and maybe that like brings like kind of a whole another level to where like you know that was i mean that was that gig was just another job um that he was doing mm-hmm. and you know, maybe he loses that and doesn't get the other opportunities, but like, there's no, there's really no telling. Uh, there's really no way to tell if like he was upset or happy with the way that his career turned out. Cause that's not the focus for cliff. Right. Um, what's a, a great cliff moment. I think, I think we should talk about, um, first of all, uh, how great is Brad Pitt in this movie? Like <laughs> I, he's, Oh my God, I love him. He's he's really he's he has so much fun with this character and I love it. He's just su- he's such a joy to watch and every time every time I watched him get into a fight, I just I wanted to see him win. Especially at the um the ranch scene. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the ranch scene. Yeah. The ranch scene is uh, really great. Um, it's you know, so takes... it's so much different compared to the rest <clears throat> of the movie. Like mm-hmm. it has such a different feel, different tone. It's literally like its own movie within the movie. Yeah, I mean, because it, it kind of sets up this, like, and I mean, it sets up, but, like, kind of brings together the story element of the whole movie. Because, like, you know, he, this is where the Manson family hangs out. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they live there, and they kidnapped his old boss, you know, to, cause just so they could fucking live there. But, like, the scene is, like, you know, just dripping with tension. Because, you know, it's clear that Brad Pitt, like, I feel like what's cool about that scene is at first you think, okay, Brad Pitt is just walking into a trap and he's, you know, he's going to be surrounded by the Manson family <laughs> and there's no, there's no way that he's going to fucking get out of it. Like what, or like that something, something's going to go wrong. Right. But once he, after he goes to talk to, um, Bruce Stern's character, the old guy right. in the, in the shed, I can't remember his name after that and he comes back out and he meets you know Tex is on the horse and then the guy um who like popped the tire and he and he's like this is my boss's car (laughs) change it now and then beats the fuck out of him you're like oh Brad Pitt has been in control this entire time like there's no but I mean like everyone else around him you know all of the all the Manson girls and like the um you know, members of the family, yeah. they're just watching him go and do whatever he wants. He's clearly in control. Yeah, because he he has he has this confidence, like this cocky confidence to him that it just it, literally like he's just he's in control the entire time because of he he doesn't even seem scared the whole time. He's just like he's literally worried about his old boss. I feel that he's. And he, yeah, I mean, that's kind of one thing about the, the movie that's really cool is that he's never scared. Like, he's never worried or, like, um, yeah. or anything like that. And the scene is, it's a long scene. It's, like, ten minutes, maybe a little bit longer. But, like, you know, the whole thing, the family that's there that's, you know, hiking, like, on horseback <laughs> up there. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just it, and then he, you know, kicks the crap out of the guy. But like, you're just like, wow, Brad Pitt has control. Yeah. But what's cool about that scene is you're like immediately you're like, okay, this guy, um, even when he's you know he's sober in that scene, he will, you know, he'll do what it takes to protect what's right, mm-hmm. exactly. to protect what's best for. I just had a thought. What's up? So in that scene, it's kind of a cool setup for what happens later because, and we can kind of segue this into, um, well, actually, hey, I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it really quick. Um, I want to bring this up. Uh, There's a cool, there's that cool, great montage after they go to, after he goes to the ranch and after they finish shooting the TV pilot, that's that kind of break in between when um, the, the second day and the third day. Right. Um, when they talk about how Rick goes to goes to Italy, makes all those Westerns, and, you know, meets uh, Francesca, I think is his wife's name. Yeah, yeah, the um, Italian woman. Mm-hmm. That's the part of the movie that kind of slows down a little bit for me. 
Like that. That's like. I mean, what was the movie too long to you when you first watched it? Like, did you think it was like a little too long? I. I actually, I was planning on saying this, but even though, even though the movie is almost three hours long, to me personally, it felt a lot shorter than that in like a good way. Cause I remember going to see it. I was like, Oh, three hour long movie. This is, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this. But then when the movie ended, I was just like, that was three hours. Cause I was, it, it felt like it went by much faster than it really did. In my personal opinion, I don't know. It does. The movie does have like, like you said, it does have its ups and downs and slower moments and faster paced moments. But to me, it all it all balances out for me, at least. See, for me, it was like the first time I watched it, I was like in like I was in the entire time until about the second act when honestly, like the first time I watched it, the, the right around the time when they're doing that uh the tv show right showing that i felt it was a little long um like that's when i thought like okay they probably could have trimmed it up a little bit to make it a little shorter but everything else felt fine and then the second time i watched it everything felt fine even the tv show except for this part where they do like you know show all the posters for when he was in westerns and he moved out there and he met francesca and like right all of that is is like it's needed exposition to get you to the last night, you know, mm-hmm. which is important because, you know, the story all kind of comes to a head there. Um, but there was clearly some exposition that was needed from and it's in typical Tarantino fashion. You know, you got to get all the details out there. So they show all the movies that, you know, all the fake movies that Rick Dalton was in yeah. directed by, you know, whoever the fuck. And <laughs> um but, you know, for Tarantino, it'd be, you know, he wants to put that in there. I feel like any other modern director now would break up the three days. If it's I mean, even if like the first two days are back to back and then you have a break in between, you would like cut to black and then come back in, in the third act and you could just see the change as opposed to getting that exposition. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of that's not really a criticism, but that's just kind of a, a something that I noticed, but that's a part for me that slows down a little bit, but it's the ending that picks the fuck up. <laughs> the ending is like, it's just so, just so, so much violence come like all, all just like condensed down into, you know, five, 10 minutes. It's just, it's so, and it's so amazing to watch. It's just I love Tarantino's like fight scenes because they're they're so a lot of the time they're just so unique to look at. Uh, like one that comes to part, uh, one that comes to mind in particular is uh, Django Unchained, the shootout in the mansion at the end. Because like I remember I was the first time I saw that scene, I was like, I didn't know if it was the appropriate response, but I was laughing my ass off. <laughs> just because just because the sheer like just how over dramatic it was um just really i don't know it just really got to me but then that in this movie um this the very last scene it's just it's just so much that is condensed all into such a short amount of time 
Yeah, I. It's interesting you bring up Django um, because that that's that's a good comparison. So when I first watched um, Hollywood, when I first watched this movie, mm-hmm. I I thought. Um, I mean, it's kind of a common thing now, and like a lot of people say that that they laugh during the end fight scene. Um, a lot of people think that that's really funny, and I and I I can't deny that there are very funny things that happen in there. I mean, he throws a fucking can of dog food at this girl, just bashes her nose, and then yeah. he uses the phone and like all that shit. And the the one um, part that's still just like, um, just like side note, the one part that still just like makes me like wince and like cringe is the part where he he takes the girl's head and bashes it against the fireplace like the stone yeah. ledge. i like yeah. every time I, s- I see that i like feel it in my nose and i'm like like jesus fucking christ <laughs> well that's like that's what i was gonna say is that like when i was watching it and still the second time i watched it i was like this is so this is painful to watch <laughs> like you just it the first the dog hits and then you know uh the can of dog food and then you know the one girl's on the ground just screaming all over the place and like um you know the he- like it's everything i just like that fucking hurts yeah holy shit whereas something like something like Django is so unrealistic because of how just all the blood like all of the fake blood yeah it's but it's but it's intentional and it's fun yeah so yeah. it's like there's, there's but like clear there's yeah but with but with Hollywood like this very last scene but with this it's like it's not it's not unrealistic that's the part that about it to me that makes it painful to watch because it's not it's not something that couldn't happen to you but mm. with like Django Unchained with like all the blood splurting everywhere um you know that's something that's a lot less likely to happen <clears throat> There's a lot going on in this ending. Yeah. Um, just this last day. So they're setting up, you know, with Kurt Russell's narration, they're setting up that Sharon Tate was at this restaurant at this time. Brad or Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are going back to their place at this time. And obviously, like we've already established, they live right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, the, Tarantino is setting you up to think, okay, the Mansons are... the the family members are going to go to Sharon Tate's place. They're going to kill, you know, they're going to kill her and then they're going to leave. Um, and another big, the, one of the biggest pieces of controversy with this film that came out was that it's, it's violence towards women. And he, it's very clear that these characters, they are just like, uh, mutilated in this scene <laughs> with, he smashes this girl's head in and then Rick uses a fucking flamethrower to set this woman on fire in a pool. Like, I, it's, it's, it's so over the top, but I love it. It's, and here's the thing. So with the controversy, the idea was that there's a, that just an overt amount of violence towards women and how that's been more of a problem in cinema. But I always saw it as like, it's not violence towards like these characters happen to be women, but I always saw, I saw it as like it's violence and Tarantino taking out his aggression <laughs> and on the Manson family. Like yeah. it's not, I've always, I always saw it as that because I mean, that kind of ties into, you know, what happens at the end, like the idea of the ending 
is like I, I always just I always saw it as like okay he's you're taking it out on the Manson family these people were murderers they were uh, horrible people yeah and which I like, would agree like, with I, like he's he's literally he's taking horrible people like horrible people in history and giving them what they deserved essentially mm-hmm. uh, and yeah so I always as painful as you know it is to watch I I felt like it was like. It, it makes sense as to why in, in context, you know, and, and I mean, you know, this movie is called once upon a time in Hollywood. It's setting it up as being a fairy tale. This is mm-hmm. like, and Tarantino is no shy is, is not shy to change history. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, he's done that in, I, I don't want to spoil Inglorious bastards for you, but he does something at the end of that movie that literally, changes is not what happens in history at all he literally changed like everything about how world war ii ended and he does the same here so in this in this great scene you know cliff booth high on acid (laughs) literally (laughs) as soon as as soon as the dude like walks through the door and he's just like completely dazed out of his mind it's just like he He's gone. Yeah, literally. And he beats the He's shit out of them gone. literally while high off his ass. Mm. Like that's how that's how amazing he is. <laughs> I love the fun the biggest the part that got the biggest laugh for me, especially the first time, was because this is like a real thing that they said when Tex comes in to the room and you know, he's like, um, Oh yeah, I saw you, I remember your hair, and you were on a horsey. And then Tex <laughs> And Tex is like, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And that's a real thing that that uh, that the Manson family said to Sharon Tate before they killed her. Like that's really? a real thing, and that's why it makes it funnier when Brad Pitt goes, "Nah, I was dumber than that. It was uh, <laughs> like Rex or something." <laughs> oh my god, I love that. I think um, my personal favorite part of that whole scene is when Rick is out. He's like out in the pool and he's got his headphones on so he can't hear anything. And then the la- the, the the screaming woman just like she fucking crashes through the glass and he just goes, "What the fuck?" <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's <laughs> Oh my god. I love because that. Because it's silent completely silent and then <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it's, it's literally so, it's like you're experiencing cool. it just as he is because it's just yeah. it's so sudden so abrupt and i love it yeah and he's just not paying attention i mean there's that there's also i mean he has a great moment to shine even before then when he goes out and the car is in their driveway he's like oh hippie degenerates and like <laughs> Oh my god, I love seeing him like scream at them in the car uh-huh. so much. Yeah. Oh. Um so obviously the Manson family, they're dead. They um Cliff, he gets like a knife in his hip and gets um taken off in the ambulance and they're uh we don't really know what happens to him. We assume that he's fine. I mean he's just, just right. got stabbed in the hip. He'll he'll be okay. Brandy's fine, like but like um uh you know that they're kind of I, I always felt like that's where their friend. I don't know if their friendship, but that's where their story together probably ends because of what happens immediately after. So like he gets carted off in the ambulance to go get better, and um, 
and then he meets um, Emil Hirsch's character, who's you know he's the friend of um, of Sharon Tate, and talks about how oh yeah, it's Sharon, uh, you okay? Oh, you're Rick Dalton, you know, and like literally everything that Rick had talked about, like he's one pool party away from being in the next Roman Polanski movie, <laughs> literally happens in that in that moment. He goes in and he you know meets. Um, he uh, he meets you know Sharon and Roman and all of them, and then he just goes inside and it hangs on their driveway. Yeah, when the title um, when the title comes up. Um, I never and, thought of it that way, like a whole like parting ways sort of thing between Cliff and Rick in the end. Mm-hmm. And well, because like I mean, now this is kind of the part where like we think that Rick's career like takes on this whole other life and. And like we said, it's the um, that's what I wanted to bring up before is that so he's driving Rick's car in the at the ranch, and it's clear that Cliff will do anything to protect um, Rick and what's what's his and what's best for him and what is I don't want to say what's rightfully his but like protect him and his being. Right. And Rick, besides the flamethrower, does nothing to prevent the. Manson killings from happening. That's all Cliff. And yeah. had that not have happened, Rick would not have met the Polanski, the Polanski and Sharon Tate and started this whole other career. That's very so. That's and, very true. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the role of the stunt man is to keep, um, you know, he's you know does all the heavy work for him, and he gets the Rick gets the career or gets the accolades, you know. Mm-hmm out of it so i that's something i just thought of now when we were just doing this and i was like oh that's kind of an interesting interesting parallel it is like a sort of like an underlying metaphor so to speak Mm -hmm. uh what did you think of the ending when you first watched it like what is your what is your interpretation of the ending like the whole the whole fight scene and like the whole well like just the idea well just the idea that he uh, Tarantino again changed history kept Sharon Tate alive at the end of this movie and um kind of like what it all means what's the takeaway of this movie like what did you like what did you think after like after the ending I mean me personally I didn't I didn't know a whole lot about the Manson family and Sharon Tate before that so I didn't know at first, whether or not it like this was a true story. Um, but I remember when I first when I first walked out of the theater, I just I kept thinking to myself like, oh, there's a car. OK, um, I kept thinking to myself if it was actually if everything that happened in the movie was true, because I don't know. I don't know why just how how this movie portrays itself um, in the way I thought about it. I thought for some reason that it was going to be based on loosely based on a true story. So I think with, with Tarantino changing history like that, it didn't really, it didn't offend me at first or not, I don't know why I said at first, but it didn't, it never really offended me that he did that because like you said before, he sets it up as a fairy tale because he has 
you know, these two fictional characters in this non-fictional world. So for me personally, it didn't bother me that he changed, um, that he changed history like that because it's like we're, it's like we're seeing, it's like we're seeing history through a different set of eyes. He's just saying, you know, what if this happened instead of Sharon Taint being, um, uh, instead of her being murdered by the Manson family, what if the Manson family gets murdered by their neighbors? So I thought I I just thought it was a I thought it was an interesting take on um just an interesting take on historical events in general because it's not like it's not like the movie sets it up to be like Saving Private Ryan where it's like this all actually happened. And this is all real. And it's it's not like, you know, World War Two Nazi movies or anything like that, because because um, he does set it up to be a fictional story. Right. Yeah. And I at first I had walked away from it thinking um, my, my initial interpretation of it was like, I mean, and this is still I feel like this still kind of stands is that, you know, Rick and Rick and Sharon Tater, like kind of these two, um, you know, they're similar, but they're also opposites at the same time. And there's this, the, the aging actor who's, you know, career's going downhill and, um, someone like Sharon Tate, whose career was on the rise and never fully came to, for, it is more known for being murdered than anything else. Um, but I thought it was interesting at how fast it was just kind of a look at how fast literally a career or a life can change, whether that be from Rick, who was, you know, lived next to Roman Polanski and because of this his career was able to keep going on and in an instant he went to you know went to Rome and made westerns and that changed his career and then Sharon Tate you know it's the opposite where just because of one bad night you know literally her life ended and nothing nothing else came from nothing right. else came from her um whereas and you know just kind of thinking of the anatomy of a career and how you know, anyone will come to Hollywood, like kind of hoping for that, you know, taste of success. Um, my interpretation is, I still believe that, but because of the whole fairy tale aspect of the movie and how it's very, you know, obviously inspired by Westerns, but like the fact that he commits that Tarantino commits that act at the end of killing off the Manson family and keeping Sharon Tate alive and making them meet with Rick, he is keeping that idea of traditional, or well, I mean, not traditional, but like golden age, like Hollywood and fame alive. That That's could, also that very he true, wanted yeah. to, That he wanted to keep that spirit. And like, not saying that we need to continue being the traditional, you know, not conform to these new Hollywood standards, but like, that, that, that there was something about the 60s and the 70s in Hollywood that changed cinema and just movies forever and like you know lives were completely changed and and not even just like the stars like you know us as kids and and like you know the filmmakers now and like you know so much was changed because of that era and um i i feel like he was you know he was upset that the that the manson family took this like you know this bright shining star away from us and wanted to keep that and keep that energy and idea of hollywood in there yeah because it ends it ends on a happy note like most stories do like you said mm -hmm. yeah um so 
before there, there's a few things we uh, we kind of we didn't talk about a lot. I love uh, the um, the the fact that the flamethrower comes back. There's all those great <laughs> moments in the beginning when you watch you know Rick's movies with you know Al Pacino. You see like the where he's talking about you know the fourteen fists fists of McCleskey and all of that. Um, the one scene I really want to bring up because like I said for the special for this you know special this segment. One thing that really brought L.A. together, especially in the 60s for me, is that scene where she goes to the Playboy Mansion. Where Sharon Tate goes to the Playboy Mansion and is partying and Son of a Lovin' Man is playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see we see Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen and, uh, you know, a couple other couple other people. But, like, there was just something about that scene that, like, made me, like, first of all, it's a great use of music. But, like, that you get to see all of these, you know, characters, like someone's playing, like, Damien Lewis playing Steve McQueen and, um, you know, also obviously Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate, but a couple other people. And, like, just seeing the vibe of this party, everyone's just dancing and fancy free and, like, not a care or stress in the world. Like, kind of added to the overall experience because of, you know, just, that's just, it just made it more, it made me feel like I was there. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that because it it does pull you into that moment and really, it really like kind of solidifies the decade that this movie takes place in. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, So before we go, um, we always got to end on this note. Why does this movie, um, we already talked a lot about why we love it, Mm-hmm. and you know what in it that we can really attach ourselves to and whatever but why does this movie uh add to your love of the film medium just in general like why how does once upon a time what do you take away from once upon a time in hollywood to be like this is something this is one thing of why i love going to the movies i think we touched on it before but with how tarantino presents his movies makes you feel or at least the past couple movies that he's made how he presents them it makes you feel like if you didn't see this movie in the theater then you missed an opportunity so i feel like with this movie in particular um he's keeping he's keeping just the art of storytelling in hollywood alive today because um, with how with how he presents his movies, how Tarantino does it, he somehow manages to transport you back to going to see a movie in the, you know, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, when it was this big grand event. Um, I don't know specifically how how he does it in general, but he always manages to present his movies in that fashion to just make it, it makes it feel like a traditional, um, just like a traditional movie in general, especially with, um, I know this is, this is more on the technical side, but how he, he refuses to like shoot his movies on digital and he keeps filming everything on celluloid film to just keep it, keep it in that classic, classic movie look. Um, that he just he wants to keep alive today. So overall, I think I just think this movie it keeps that tradition of um, 
going to the movies in the 1960s and 70s alive overall? That's a great answer. Um, <laughs> for he, yeah, I mean, he's definitely become known for doing that and taking his movies on the road and doing them and you know the the certain showings and having them in a specific you know film print. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really it's not a whole lot of other directors doing that. The only one who has done that recently is like Paul Thomas Anderson, um, and even then, it's still a completely different experience. And Tarantino's movies are events like that. You just you have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I mean, just it's it's tough because there's so many things I love. I mean, I I love a movie with just eccentric characters like these, like they are just all over the place in all the best ways <laughs> like there there's so many things about them that make them um that make them characters that like that you you watch this and you're like you're not these are not real people but like i wish that i knew them in some way and <laughs> i on top of it you know being just how much attention to detail and effort they put into making la a whole other uh, I, I hate to say it, but like a, a character in that movie, and it—it's like it's such a—it's just a world that I want to be in. Like I want to be in, you know, 1969 in Hollywood when I watch this movie. I'm just—I'm yeah. transported there. Um, and and there's a lot of movies that you could say that about, but Hollywood is this one is just is one for the books for sure. It is. It really is. It's it's it is its own unique film, and I I do. I did enjoy this film a lot. Thank you, Brian, so much. All right, that does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Big thanks to Brian for coming on. As always, we've been wanting to get him back for a while. We're glad we can do it for the LA Sessions. This podcast was produced by Sullivan Harris, who also did the artwork. If you want more updates from us, please go follow our social media on Facebook, Frankly, I Love Movies, and Twitter at Frankly Podcast. And of course, we hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during these troubling times. But we want to know, what are you binge-watching while social distancing? Tag us in a post on any social media to let us know. And as always, tune in in two weeks for another episode talking about a special movie with a special guest. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.